Hi, welcome to the Integrative Health Podcast with Dr. Jen Flegar. This podcast is meant to educate and empower about important health topics. Dr. Jen's passion is to get to the root cause of disease and prevent illness. She will also feature guests who are experts in their fields and experiences in all things related to integrative medicine. Today's episode is all about candida. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a comment, share with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, welcome back to the Integrative Health Podcast with Dr. Jen. Today, we are going to talk about some awesome things. Um, I'm here with Dr. Kurt Wohler. He is a DO like me, DOs Unite. He's a doctor of osteopathic medicine, integrative and functional medicine physician, and biomedical autism treatment treatment specialist and clinical practice for more than two decades. He's the author of several integrative medicine health books, an international lecturer and education educator and medical education director of Integrative Medicine Academy, an online training academy specializing in functional and integrative medicine courses. He's also the medical director of Functional Medicine Clinical Rounds and Autism Recovery System two additional online educational resources. Dr. Wohler is the creator and teaches the organic acids test training seminar for the Great Plains Laboratory and has presented lectures on many health topics at medical conferences over the years, including issues related to chronic candidiasis and related functional infections. And I have listened to his lectures and they're excellent. Through his private practice, he focuses on specialized diagnostic testing and treatments for individuals with complex medical conditions like autism, autoimmune, and neurological disorders. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking your time to be here. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, I I was so excited that you agreed to talk because I love your lectures on the organic acids test. It is a test that I use quite a bit in my integrative office. Yeah. I mean, those, the, the organic acid test is a, a, a great test. We can talk a little bit more about that. And I've been doing them for years. I mean, I actually designed, as you mentioned, uh, an entire course for healthcare practitioners on the interpretation and, and utilization of that test. And even after eight hours of lecture material, we just really have scratched the surface. But a huge part of that test is analyzing for underlying fungal problems, which includes candida, and then sort of moving off from there about all the different layers and things that it can be involved in. So it's been a lot of fun, a lot of work, a lot of fun, but great stuff. Yeah, well, it's appreciated because it is such an important thing. And a lot of people, they, they don't know what it is. So what is candidiasis? What, I mean, if someone was just like, what are you even talking about with that word? How would you explain it? Well, candida is a, it's an organism that as a group, right, we're, we're all exposed to. These are things that live in our natural world, including some of them inside our body. So our body is part of the natural world too. And so they can, exist as part of our what's called our microbiome. And if we take the biological group of organisms, so if you break things down that way, we call them fungi. Well, yeast is a type of fungi. Candida is a type of yeast. So candida technically is a yeast, but it also is a fungus. So it falls under that biological group. 
And like a lot of organisms, whether it's bacteria, yeast, there's different types and different strains. And, you know, some of them are more pathogenic than others. Some, you know, just are sort of, you know, kind of hang out and don't really do much. Probably the one that most people are familiar with is candida albicans. So that would be the most common form of, of candida. And, you know, the, the thing is, is these things can be natural within our digestive system. But when we have disharmony in the body, or we have something that affects our immune system or affects the immune system within our gut or the other organisms in our digestive tract become imbalanced, these opportunistic organisms like candida can be can sort of seize the opportunity to become somewhat problematic and in some cases very problematic depending on other factors. So they're natural, we have them, but in certain circumstances, they can become quite problematic on many levels. We can talk about that. Right. Yeah. It's when they're out of balance or it's an, it's an overgrowth of, you know, the yeast, um, you know, and a lot of people, when they think of candida or yeast infections, they think of vaginal yeast infections or, you know, on the skin and for, you know, what I have seen is those are just a clue sometimes that you have deeper issues. So what is invasive candida? What does that mean? So what happens when, so you have to think about these organisms living in our gut and, and what you just mentioned, living on the skin or, you know, a vaginal yeast infection. And, and that is typically how conventional medicine and conventional science, science views candida. They recognize the very pathogenic forms too, but let's say a newborn can have thrush so that, that, you know, a cottage cheese sort of, you know, accumulation that happens in the mouth because they get a candida overgrowth. Though that sometimes can happen in elderly people as well. Or you get a skin infection. What often gets overlooked is what's called, you know, gastrointestinal candida or candidiasis, an overgrowth. In fact, many doctors look at it as just something that's sort of common and ordinary. The problem is they don't understand the chemicals that these organisms produce and how they can influence our body in other ways. So candida can exist as an independent cell in what's called a unicellular state, but it has a high propensity to become invasive. And so when the environment shifts or we're getting some imbalance or some added stress or pressure is applied on the organisms, they will start to transform themselves from sort of this unicellular symbiotic organism to an invasive organism. They actually produce proteins that allow it to grow a hypha or a tail structure. Imagine an organism like that being able to grow like a a root, um, like a weed, for example. Mm. And so the invasive nature of candida is just that. They start to invade the surface lining of the digestive tract. They can either grow right through a cell or they grow between the spaces between cells called tight junctions. And that by definition is an invasive form of the organism. It doesn't mean it's in your bloodstream yet, but it's becoming invasive at the mucosal or the gut lining. And that's why candida is known to trigger or cause or create a leaky gut type of situation. Yeah. And what happens underneath those cells, the epithelial cells, is where your immune system is sitting. And so if those hypha or those root structures grow and engage the immune system, now all of a sudden you can start getting 
a broader immune reaction, which can generate inflammation. And that inflammation can actually be sent systemically throughout your body, but it can also be at the local area. So there's different levels of invasiveness, but it begins by stress or pressure on the organism. Uh, and what's interesting about candida, these are very sophisticated organisms. They can actually manipulate their environment, causing stress on other neighboring candida cells. They can change the pH. They can change the uh, carbon dioxide levels. They can, it's, it's, they're incredible when you actually start delving into the sophisticated nature of these organisms. Um, and so one of the things I, I think for all of us, and probably you've seen this too in the world of integrative medicine is a lot of people think of, oh, candida, they go, oh yeah, you know, you got a little bit of, you know, bloating and gas and you know, you, you no big deal. Everybody's got that. But again, it goes back to what else are these things doing that can be problematic? And it's, there's a lot. Right. It, it goes a little deeper. So would, what would be like a clue of invasive candida? Like you said, bloating and, you know, for intestinal candida, would like a chronic yeast infection or if people are more prone to fungal infections, does that indicate that maybe they have some candida? Very much so. Um, and so you, you can have some people that may have very little symptoms and have pretty significant mucosal invasion. They're their manifestation of an underlying candida problem could be heightened food reactions or brain fog or headaches, or I just can't think right or attention problems where somebody else, it may be more inflammatory where they've got, you know, inflamed bowels or they're getting a lot of pain in the body. So candida can get into your bloodstream. And that by definition is what's called candidemia, where you're actually growing candida in your bloodstream. And not everybody who has mucosal invasion of candida will have a candidemia. And so, you know, a systemic fungal infection is a very serious disorder, particularly if you're immune compromised, because these things can weaken the immune system and people can die from that. The vast majority of people that we come in contact with who have a chronic candidiasis situation aren't necessarily growing candida in their bloodstream, but they have an overgrowth in the digestive tract. And because of the chemical production of these things, they can have systemic effects. They can have inflammatory effects. They can have local intestinal effects, loose stools, constipation, bloating, or gas. They might have, you know, just unexplained skin reactions, for example, and as I mentioned, you know, heightened food sensitivity. So it's, in some cases, it's difficult to know. You actually have to do testing to try to figure out exactly, because as you know, in medicine, you know, a group of symptoms could be characteristic of, you know, a number of different disorders. There's, very, right. there's a lot of similarity. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's good to test. And, and that's why, you know, and we'll discuss a little bit how we test later. So you were talking about candida and invasive, and you were talking about how they grow these legs kind of in roots and they almost, you know, like a biofilm, right? So can you explain what a biofilm is and what makes it unique to these organisms? So biofilm is a substance that most organisms produce bacteria yeast produce just generally in their natural environment. I remember talking to a fellow, he was from 
Um, he was from the National Institutes of Health, and he was actually a researcher in biofilm formation for people who had diabetic ulcerations on their skin and burn victims. And he commented to me, he goes, you know, they know that in the natural world, these organisms live in a state of biofilm. So biofilm is, it is a substance that these organisms produce that they embed themselves in. And it, and it acts, so think of, if you can imagine, if nobody's seen a picture of a biofilm, imagine a cloud that gets produced and you're sort of living inside this, this shell that protects you against the immune system. But it also allows you to live in your own community with other organisms in your own biofilm. So you have these biofilm communities and these biofilm communities are highly complex. They can move, they can grow, they can change shape. Pieces of them can break off. They, organisms within these biofilms can communicate with each other, but you can also have biofilm colonies that communicate with other biofilm colonies. You can have yeast, you can have bacteria, you can have multiple organisms that survive. A lot of the research into biofilm actually comes out of the dental profession mm -hmm. because they know that bacteria in the mouth can produce biofilm, which can contribute to periodontal disease, cavities, these types of things. And the, the probably the reality is, is that there's a certain level of biofilm that may even exist normally within our digestive tract where many normal bacteria are, are, are surviving. So I think there's, a, there's probably an upside and, a, and certainly a lot of downsides to excessive biofilm formation because they do make it more difficult to treat these organisms. Right. And then you have this quorum sensing where they all, like you were talking about, they all talk to each other, you know? Yeah, and, and quorum sensing, I actually first learned about quorum sensing years ago. I was listening to a biologist on a TED Talk, and she was talking about how jellyfish, um, I think it's the man of war where, they, where their tentacles light up, hmm. you know, because it's, there's bacteria, in the, and I, I'm probably not doing the story justice, but, well... They, those organisms are communicating with each other and that causes that fluorescent light, but the, but the chemical communication is called quorum sensing. Mm -hmm. These are chemical inducers of activity of other organisms. So these organisms will produce chemicals that go and crosstalk to other organisms. Maybe it's just to let them know that, hey, we're all kind of in this together or it's to you know incite some type of activity. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating aspect of the way these organisms communicate. And what's interesting about quorum sensing is that many of the botanical remedies, which are often used against these organisms, whether it's candida or certain bacteria, have anti-quorum sensing properties. So somehow they're either to, they're able to bind it or interfere with that message. It's, it's just so cool how complex our GI track is, you know. So I had this recent patient story that was really cool. So she was diagnosed with invasive candida um, using the organic acids test. And one of her symptoms that she noticed went away was this difficulty swallowing. And after all, she was almost at the end of two months, she's like, I noticed that I could start swallowing pills again. And then she 
you know, went to a graduation party and had some cake and some sugar kind of got off of the, you know, for a weekend off of the candida, anti-candida diet type thing. And she noticed she had that difficulty again. And then she went back, you know, to the regular diet she was doing with the, you know, less sugar and it was fine again. So, you know, how, how it can affect, you know, our whole GI track, I think is just an amazing story, but her, for example, and I'm sure you've dealt with so many, you know, maybe you could give a, you know, a success story, her brain fog went away. She was glowing. I mean, I was just so excited for her. And, you know, when you don't test, you don't know. And when you have all these symptoms, whether it's, you know, on the autism spectrum disorder, whether it's an autoimmune disease, whether it's food allergies, whether it's chronic rashes, and you don't look for, for the why it's, it's sad, right? Um, Yeah, it, it, I have many, many, many cases over the years. And, you know, some of what you describe, I mean, let's talk about some other aspects of candida, because Again, it's easy to think of it as a just sort of a benign, simplistic organism that, oh, we just need to give a couple of weeks of a medication and we're all good to go. Right. Um, we know that it can change the structure of absorption in our gut. So we know that it can do that. We also know it can increase the leaky gut. And why that's important for people to understand is that autoimmune disorders and reactions where your immune system is now attacking certain normal tissues in your body can be triggered because of a leaky gut scenario. It's basically like putting a screen door in a submarine, right? All things can <laughs> enter. And now all of a sudden your buffering mechanisms are gone and your immune system gets very hyperreactive. And that causes inflammation that can be taken systemically in the gut, joints, muscles, all over, even the brain. Right. But candida also can produce certain chemicals that can affect things within the brain and nervous system. So arabinose, for example, you mentioned doing an organic acid test. And the organic acid test that I teach on and utilize in my practice is the test from Great Plains Laboratory, because I think I feel like it has the most comprehensive information uh, on the market. But arabinose is a chemical that actually gets produced or created when candida is becoming invasive at the level of the gut. But arabinose is a very interesting chemical because it has a chemical structure or a functional group on it called an aldehyde. And aldehyde chemicals by nature, like formaldehyde, which you and I had plenty of exposure to in medical school in the anatomy lab, okay? <laughs> But aldehydes by nature, including an aldehyde called acetaldehyde, are very toxic compounds. This aldehyde functional group is very reactive chemically. And so it can break down and transform into what are called free radicals and things that generate a lot of oxidative stress. And so it's known that these aldehyde compounds, and there's many of them that we're encountering naturally in our diet or get produced naturally in our body, and then many chemicals as well, but including candida, can trigger oxidative reactions. But the the arabinose will bind to certain amino acids. It can bind to lysine. It can bind to arginine, for example, and form a chemical compound called pentosidine. And why that's important is pentosidine falls in the same category as hemoglobin A1C. These things that, that 
attached to proteins and other cellular structures in the brain, including myelin, for example. So they're actually known to adversely affect myelin, that communication signaling, um, uh, however you call it, I'm, I'm sort of forgetting the terminology now, in the speed at which our brain cells communicate. The other thing that arabinose can do through its interactions is it can interact with certain nutrients like vitamin B6 or lipoic acid. Mm-hmm. And B6, I know, as you've studied, is has a huge role in neurochemistry. We need B6 to make dopamine. Um, B6 plays a role in the methylation cycle. So a chronic candida problem can not only create toxic compounds that can affect the brain and nervous system, but it can lead to functional imbalances and other kinds of nutrients. Right. Um, the other thing you talked about with this person feeling, hey, I feel more clear-headed or God, I, I can remember stuff now, whatever that, whatever that, how that manifests. Well, one of the things, if you actually look at the metabolic process of a yeast cell, it loves sugar. So it loves glucose. Mm-hmm. And it'll convert glucose as an end product of ethanol, otherwise known as alcohol. So people actually produce, or in severe cases, a lot of alcohol in their system. And that we already know can affect the brain and nervous system in adverse ways. Um, Very similar if you had an alcoholic drink. And this is why for years, many parents with autistic kids who are extremely sensitive to the presence of these chemicals will often talk about their kids acting drunk, Mm. goofy, giddy, silly, inappropriate laughter, when clearly there is nothing that funny going on or there's really nothing that would be stimulating that. And that when they you put these kids on Nystatin as an antifungal or a candida diet, those behaviors either improve significantly or go away. And for your listeners out there, um, look up auto brewery syndrome. Yeah. And start to realize that the gut can ferment all kinds of compounds and produce different chemicals that can affect the brain and nervous system. It's never made sense to me why this is not more recognized. Right. You know, to sit there and think that if when you and I, if we drank an alcoholic beverage, the first place you feel it is in your head. Right. It immediately goes to your head, particularly if you don't have any food in your stomach. Well, these organisms are producing the same kind of compounds. Right. And um, I can share I can share a really extreme case with you if you want, as far as one of the most immediate sort of transformations I saw with a underlying yeast problem. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. So um, back at the time I was living in Southern California in San Diego, which is where I'm originally from. And in Southern California, they have fire season. Right. So there's a season for fire, these wildfires. Anyway, what ends up happening is many of these fires start in the eastern counties of San Diego uh, and blow towards the Pacific Ocean. So I had a, uh, a child who was severely autistic, but he was fairly well regulated when he was controlled on his diet and taking foundational supplements plus antifungal botanicals. So he was still autistic, but not severe. So this fire comes ripping through San Diego. It's blowing all the smoke towards the Pacific Ocean. And I I was used to this kind of thing because in that part of the country, those desert winds will usually kick up, even without fires, a lot of pollen. So a lot of people will develop allergies 
And then anytime somebody has an underlying candida problem, sometimes their, their candida exacerbates when there's a lot of environmental allergies. This is why sometimes you see spikes in these problems in the spring, for example. So anyway, I get a phone call and the mother describes the fact that within about 72 hours, her child went from well-controlled, regulated to breathing in all of the smoke in about 72 hours, went from that to smearing stool in his bedroom and in his bathroom. Mm. And it was such a, and of course it was causing a lot of significant distress. And I thought, okay, this is an extreme manifestation likely of allergy, probably exacerbated by an underlying yeast problem. So I thought about doing an organic acid test. I'm like, I can't do that. It's going to take, you know, 10 days to get it back. I mean, this family is not going to be able to function. Then I thought about doing a botanical, but I'm like, well, that's probably not going to be strong enough. If I did Nystatin, that probably wouldn't work either. So I put him on a short course of diflucan, fluconazole, which is a a systemically absorbed antifungal. Within 48 hours, it was either 48 or 72 hours, all that behavior stopped. Wow. It just short-circuited it. And it was a a lesson for me at that time about how quickly these problems can occur and how quickly they can turn around with the right treatment. Now, was that child completely well? Was he completely out of the woods? Well, no, he still had an underlying problem with an underlying fungal issue for many reasons that, you know, whether it's from immune system deficiencies, et cetera. So there was clearly more work to do, but it it was a dramatic shift in behavior because of an underlying yeast problem. And so that's how powerful these organisms can be and the effects that they can have on you. Right. That's a, that's a great story. It, it is, it's just crazy that this isn't talked about more or recognized more, unfortunately. And, you know, so you spoke about arabinose. Why can we talk about why candida produce oxalates and a little bit of in, in more detail, what oxalates are and why they're bad. And maybe, maybe why people shouldn't have two cups of spinach in their smoothies. I, I had a patient once that I told her she was having, you know, not to put two cups of spinach in her smoothie. Cause I, I had a hunch she had a candida issue and I didn't want to exacerbate it. And she's like, I cannot believe a doctor is telling me not to have spinach. <laughs> so can you explain a little bit about oxalates? Yeah, well, oxalates are, you know, this is a chemical that is, well, by definition, it's an acid. So oxalic acid. So it can actually acidify the body because it's fairly acidic when it loses its, its, its hydrogen. But the, these are, this is a chemical that's found in many different types of plants, naturally, as well as nuts and seeds and, and whatnot, too. And certain foods have much higher oxalic acid. Let's call it oxalate. So that's just another term for it. Spinach being extremely high, so is soy. Now, if you eat a moderate amount of oxalate and you've got a healthy digestive system that can break down the oxalate in the gut, it's usually not a big problem. But... Most kidney stones, about 90% of them, are of what's called calcium oxalate nature, right? Where the oxalates get absorbed into your body, and then they interact with calcium, and you deposit kidney stones because they basically deposit out of fluid or out of uh, um, 
at a solution and they deposit in your kidney, but they can also deposit in your joints, your muscles, your connective tissue and elsewhere in your body. There are very serious disease states linked to oxalates called primary hyperoxaluria's that are more genetic. And many of these people who have the really severe forms of these things don't live very long lives because these oxalate crystals will destroy their organs, their, their kidneys, as well as the liver. So oxalates form crystals. These crystals, when you look at them, uh, like through an electron microscope, are very jagged, very sharp. They look like they would hurt. Yeah. And they do, right? So you'll have people that develop kidney stones. That's painful enough. But you can have oxalate crystals that are flowing through your urinary system and you're urinating them out. That's irritating the urethra and it's painful. But then they get into your joints. They get into your muscles. They can accumulate in your connective tissue. And so they can cause a wide variety of pain syndrome. So fibromyalgia can be linked. I'm not saying all cases, but can be linked to oxalates. And I've seen some pretty dramatic problems. Oxalates also can bind to other minerals. So they can bind to zinc. They can bind to uh, cobalt. They can bind to other minerals, but they can also bind to heavy metals. So you're not just making oxalate crystals. You could be making mercury oxalate, lead oxalate, zinc oxalate. And so they can lead to mineral imbalances as well. One of the other problems with oxalates is that they're very hard on our body metabolically. So our body is designed to try to get rid of them. But if it doesn't have the ability to get rid of them, it'll start to store them. And you can get oxalates that store in your bones. There's actually images of oxalates forming in endocrine glands, as well as the brain and, and, and nerve tissue outside the central nervous system. Oxalates also will deplete sulfur or sulfate from our body. And that's a big deal because we need sulfate in order to help detoxify things out of our liver or to help create the mucosal barrier within our digestive system. Most people who have high oxalate issues, a lot of it is dietary driven, where they're just eating a lot of high oxalate foods. But in those individuals, there's, it's also a problem because there's high absorption, which means they don't have good bacterial diversity in the digestive tract to break down the oxalates. So the things get absorbed pretty rapidly. You can have nutritional deficiencies that can increase your chances of oxalate problems. Thiamine deficiencies or B6, for example, even a magnesium deficiency can be a contributing factor. But the unique thing about these fungal organisms, including candida, is they can produce oxalates. Candida actually has an enzyme called isocitrate lyase. Basically what that does is it steals reserves from mitochondrial activity and converts it into downstream effects that produce oxalic acid. Mold produces oxalates, aspergillus mold, for example is a known producer of oxalates. I've actually got lecture slides in many of my courses that show an individual with what's called an aspergilloma, which is a, a fungal ball growing in this person's lung, but their lung becomes calcified by oxal, uh, calcium oxalate crystals. Wow. So anymore, when we start to think of oxalates, we think not only diet, but also an underlying fungal problem that's probably feeding it, is probably contributing to it. And the reality is, is for most people, it's a combination of factors. All right. Spinach being the worst. I mean, I have, I have my own story. 
with the whole spinach scenario. Okay, let's hear it. Um, so my kids, when they were in high school, their high school gym teachers, I think it was ninth grade, nice guy. He was in his mid thirties. And, you know, he's trying to be a positive influence on the kids, you know, to eat healthy and exercise and this kind of stuff. Well, it turned out he was out of school that year, three times for kidney stones. Oh my gosh. And I remember talking to my daughter saying, you know, what, what's the deal, right? It's not like she knew everything about his medical history, but she would comment, he would often talk about the smoothies that he would make every day and the juicing he would make every day. And every day he would make a spinach juice. He would juice spinach. And so I finally told my daughter, I says, you know, I want to tell your gym teacher to stop consuming, you know, spinach juice and spinach smoothie. He's getting a cocktail of oxalates. That's just his body can't handle it. It just, it's now at the point where it's accumulating it and it's forming crystals and stones in his body. Right. And like you said, he was trying to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So, and what do you think the correlation? Now you said a lot of oxalates can be dietary, but if you ask them and they're not having a lot, you know, of dietary, how, how often do you think it is an underlying, um, you know, either aspergillus or, I think quite often. I think also what's happening too is that we could be dealing with an individual who has faulty digestion. Mm -hmm. So if you have poor fat digestion, so if you can't absorb fats effectively, that can increase your absorption of oxalates. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when people go on a low oxalate program, it it not only includes diet, right? They've got to turn off the the consumption of high oxalate foods. And, and if they have an underlying fungal problem, you need to address that as well. But then it's doing things to try to prevent the absorption. One is, you know, pr- there's many different kinds of probiotics that can help, you know, break things down somewhat in the gut. We can use calcium citrate and magnesium citrate as a binder because that form of that mineral disassociates pretty rapidly in the digestive tract. And then you bind the oxalate to the calcium in the gut. It doesn't get absorbed. It gets eliminated in the stool. But sometimes people need to be on digestive enzymes, for example, to make sure they're actually absorbing their fat. So it's a, it's a multitude of things. And if you can, if you can do all of that, right, the body eventually wants to get rid of stored oxalate. And so it'll start, the stuff will start coming out of your tissues and you'll start excreting it. Um, it could take a while for some people, you know, some people it may be a couple of weeks, others it may be multiple months that you have to work. I actually have a case of an, uh, a, a teenage boy who had an underlying chronic candida problem plus high oxalates, a lot of body pain. It took him 11 months to get through a series of, of treatments. We actually have four different organic acid tests that show the progression of improvement wow. over that time. Yeah. Yeah. So with oxalates, you know, I do find it interesting, you know, I'll have people comment on, you know, Oh, so-and-so got, has kidney stones. And I'm like, well, the most common kidney stone, you know, like over 90% is calcium 
oxalates. So, and then I'm like, you might want to get some functional testing, you know, and make sure there's not candida overgrowth or, you know, what are they eating? And, you know, and this goes back to the root cause, you know, if you're going into the emergency room for a kidney stone, you know, or you're seeing urology for a kidney stone, they're not going to get to this root cause. And oh my gosh, how many times is the gut health? Like you said, it's absorption. It's, it's dysbiosis in there. I mean, gut health is just so key to be running on all, all cylinders. Right. I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's, it's critical. Um, I actually did a lecture recently for uh, a functional medicine group and I kept coming back to the fact that said, you know, no matter what kind of patient you're working with, whatever their, their diagnosis or what their underlying issues are, so much of it comes back to the gut. And they know this in naturopathic medicine. I mean, my, my wife and partner in practice is this was day one in her naturopathic training. Um, this is something that's often overlooked in other systems of medicine, but it is so purely fundamental to what we do as functional integrative practitioners. Um, whether it's somebody with depression, whether it's some, a child with autism, whether it's somebody with heart disease, you know, uh, an autoimmune disease. Yeah, there are other things to work on, but you always have to evaluate the gut. Diet is always a component. Right. Um, it's, it is, uh, you're not going to get very far in any kind of health pursuit if you're not willing to modify and change your diet. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you, you do have to put work in for these things, you know, like, yep. yeah, it, 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 there's no easy, simple pill for, for gut health and candida, you know, it, it can help like that Diflucan helped your one patient, but you had been working and, and there's a lot of other work to be done with that. So, you know, listeners out there, you know, listening to this, if you, all these vague symptoms we spoke about, you know, like you were told you have fibromyalgia. Oh, go on an antidepressant. You were told you had brain fog. Oh, you're a mother, you know, of a few kids. So that's why your brain is foggy. Um, you know, we can go on and on about all these symptoms that are just kind of brushed off. You know, sometimes we're not saying candida is, you know, the reason for all of this, but, you know, you should be investigating more why you're having symptoms because our body's giving us these like little signs, like these little pokes, like, hello, something's wrong. Something's wrong because otherwise it can turn into, you know, major health consequences. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the, that's where people need to start a lot of times researching themselves and finding practitioners such as yourself that can help, you know, run some of these tests. Let's talk about a few of these tests. Yes. So it, you, you kind of opened our, our discussion here about the organic acid test. And let me explain what that is real quickly. Organic acids are, are compounds that we produce naturally in our body. So they contain carbon and hydrogen, essentially. But some of these chemicals might contain other types of, you know, things like oxygen or nitrogen, whatever. So lactic acid, most people know about lactic acid. So if you went, you exercise and you had a heavy workout, you kind of get that achy feeling the next day. Um, in, in part, that is felt to be somewhat related to lactic acid. So there's many different of these compounds that we produce naturally that are representative of underlying physical and uh, cellular metabolism. 
And so the organic acid test helps to evaluate these things either from an abnormal or a normal level. But then there are organic acids that bacteria, mold, candida produced within our digestive system that can get absorbed into our body and have their own chemical effects. So the organic acids test is evaluating for a wide variety of these chemical compounds some of them related to things that we produce naturally, many of them related to organisms within our digestive tract that can affect us adversely. It's a urine test, so it's you know, relatively easy to get, um, and it provides a ton of information. I actually consider the organic acid test in clinical practice to be, for me, the primary test that I'm going to do. No one escapes my clinical consults without at least doing an organic acid test. I might do other stuff, but they're going to get that. Um, and it's a game changer where it gets difficult is in the interpretation of it. And that's, that's a challenge. It's a challenge for many health practitioners to interpret it. There's a lot of genetics and biochemistry that go into it, but people don't have to become a biochemist or geneticist to figure to, 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 learn how to use the test. And certainly as a patient, you don't really care about all that. You just want to know what it says. Right. So to me, the Great Plains Laboratory organic acid test is my preferred test uh, for organic acid testing. And so that's something that should be done in everybody. Now, we were talking a lot about gut health. And I think at some point, somebody should do what's have what's done a, a, called a comprehensive digestive stool analysis. Yeah. And these are comprehensive profiles that analyze the levels of bacteria and the diversity of bacteria. They'll culture for candida. They'll culture for pathogenic bacteria. They'll look at digestive markers. They'll look at inflammation. They'll look at other factors that can give us clues and often complement the information we get off of an organic acid test. So those two things really kind of merge well together. I caution people about going to the doctor and requesting a stool test to diagnose gastrointestinal candidiasis because it's often normal, even though there may be an underlying candida problem. And why that occurs is it goes back to the complex nature of the organisms. They're highly sophisticated. They're not always shedding in our stools. So right. the stool test often misses it, whereas the organic acid test picks it up. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I'll get a KOH prep. Sometimes that will give me a few clues, but, but I agree. A lot of the times you have to go by symptoms. If a patient can only pick one, you know, test, but, but I, I agree, you know, those parasites and the yeast, they're, they're sneaky little devils, right? They, they hide mm -hmm. out. Very much. And this is why also it can be a little bit confusing and, um, not as accurate to do blood testing. And there's a lot of blood testing, right? You can do what are called antibodies. Everybody's hearing about antibodies now because of COVID. But you've got different antibodies, which may or may not be elevated. So you can have an overgrowth scenario in the gut. You can even have a mucosal invasion in the gut and have, you know, relatively normal looking antibodies. Right. The other thing to realize, too, is you can have an overgrowth of candida in the gut that isn't necessarily even being invasive. 
and still have systemic reactions because there are other chemicals that are getting produced by these things. Like I mentioned, the normal metabolism of a yeast cell on glucose is to convert it to ethanol. Okay, so you can have an alcohol effect because of candida and it's not even invasive within the body. So there's a lot to it. And so I think for, you know, from a, just a general standpoint, the organic acid test is, is very important plus symptoms plus clinically correlating that. Right. Um, that is, that is the place to start in my experience. Right. Oh my gosh. So this has been an amazing podcast. I'm sure my listeners probably have a million more questions and they probably have been so fascinated by all of this. And I thank you so much for breaking all this down. Um, I can put up on my Instagram, maybe I'll go through one of my kids' organic acid tests or something to kind of show them a little bit more. Um, how can my listeners reach you, find you? Um, for my listeners, you know, on the West Coast that may be, you know, in Oregon, if they have a, a child that's autistic or, you know, they want to see you, how can how can my listeners find so you? So my pre- the best uh my practice, my website is mysunrisecenter.com. So mysunrisecenter.com. Our email is scmedicalcenter at gmail.com. And I can always email this information to you as well. So that would be my practice um, where I can do consult. And I consult with people all over. Um, we're actually in the process of reworking my my main sort of Dr. Waller website. It needs, it needs some updating, but if people are interested in more information, um, even if you have practitioners, perhaps who might be listening, uh, we have, you mentioned before, we have our integrative medicine Academy. So integrative medicine Academy is our online Academy with all different kinds of courses on functional integrative medicine. And we actually do have a new course coming up called candida mastery course which will be very intense, uh, very in-depth, covering this information and much more about what we've talked about here. And that that course is coming up in July, candidamasterycourse.com. But as far as private consultations, the uh, my website and my my practice email at scmedicalcenter at gmail.com is the best way to find me. And you can just do a Google search on my name and come across a lot of information, a lot of articles, a lot of videos I've created over the years. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your amazing knowledge of this subject. And it was really great to have you on. I hope you have a great evening. Thank, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. This podcast is created and hosted by Dan Flegar and is for informational purposes only. It is not medical advice. This podcast exclaims responsibility for adverse effects from use of information obtained in this podcast. This podcast does not promote opinions of their guests as their own and does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests of the show or endorse any qualifications for the guests of this podcast. Guests may have financial disclosures. If you think you have a medical problem, consult your personal physician or team. Thank you for joining.